Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Weggie, supporting good things that need to happen now. Welcome to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Joe Hill was born with the name Joseph King. He's the son of legendary author Stephen King. But Joe writes under the last name Hill out of a desire to succeed on his own merits. Now he's recognized as one of today's best horror writers. Joe Hill's novels include Heart Shaped Box and The Fireman. His latest book is Strange Weather, which is made up of four short novels. Joe talks this hour with fellow author Lauren Esselman, who is best known for a series of crime novels featuring the investigator Amos Walker. Joe started off talking about and reading from one of the stories from Strange Weather. So this is from a story called Rain, and it's the end of the world. A pollutant has gotten loose in the sky, which is causing rain to crystallize. So now rain is falling as, as you know, nail-like shards of stone. And uh, it, this turns out to be highly lethal. If you're caught out in it, you're torn to shreds. And if, you know, God help you if you happen to be driving on the interstate, it would be like driving straight into machine gun fire. So this crisis is spreading across the world, um, and, and in the midst of it, our hero, Honeysuckle Speck, tries to walk from Boulder to, uh, to Denver to get in touch with someone she cares about um, and to bring them some important news. And in the course of the walk, uh, it's a bright, sunny day, and in the course of the walk, she comes along a chain gang, which is sweeping the nails out of the road and uh, um, you know, trying to clear, clear a path so that traffic can get through and emergency aid can get through up to Boulder. And um, she winds up hitching a ride with two men. One is a police officer named Dillett, and uh, one is um, uh, a convicted murderer named Teasdale, uh, who had to stop. He was part of the chain gang, but he had to stop after he suffered a severe injury to his foot. So that's where we are. They're getting into the John Deere and they're getting ready to go. For what it's worth, the back of the John Deere is filled with corpses. <laughs> Dillett's John Deere was the size of a shed on wheels. And when I was up in the cab, I was a full nine feet off the road. This was no little family tractor. When he got it going, the engine roar was so loud I thought it might shake the teeth out of my gums. What did you do? I asked Teasdale. Oh, I cut my landlord's head off with a hacksaw, he said in a cheery voice. It was self-defense, but you can't find a jury anywhere that isn't biased against people who struggle with their weight. <laughs> no, I said. I mean, what happened to your foot? Oh, I stepped on an eight-inch nail, went right through the sole of my boot into my heel. Blame my extreme size. When there's been unhappiness in my life, my obesity has usually been the cause. Ouch, eight inches, are you messing with me? No, Dillett answered for him. I took it out myself. It was about the size of a walrus tooth. I didn't know the nails could get that big. She ain't heard about Enid, Teasdale said. Dillett looked glum and nodded somberly. What about Enid, I asked. Enid, Oklahoma? Dillett said, it's gone. It poured spikes as big as carrots there, killed people in their houses. Storm only lasted 20 minutes, and they're saying over half the city's population was wiped out. The storms are tearing their way east and getting worse as they go. The sparkle dust, the stuff that grows into crystals, is following the westerlies right across the nation. We can't say we weren't warned, Teasdale told us in a contented tone. When were we warned it might rain nails, Dillard asked him. Was that in the Weather Channel and I missed it? It's global climate change, Teasdale said. They've been talking about it for years. Al Gore, Bill Nye, we just didn't want to listen to them. Dillett couldn't have looked more stunned if Teasdale had opened his mouth and a dove flew out. Climate change, my ass. This isn't climate change. Well, I don't know what else you'd call it. It used to rain water. Now it's raining blades of silver and gold. That is a change of climate. Teasdale rubbed a thumb against his chin, then said, Ghosts is next. You think it's going to rain ghosts? I think we'll have ghosts instead of fog. The mist will wear face, the faces of the departed. 
all those we hadn't lost. You better hope for clear weather then, Dillett said. If a fog made out of ghost rolls in, your landlord might turn up wanting his back rent. <laughs> I count my blessings to live in a dry mountain climate, Teasdale told me complacently. I'll face whatever blows in on the wind. It may come to blow gales of pure sadness instead of air and leave us all taking shelter from grief. Maybe time itself will begin to crest and drop instead of temperature. We might have the 19th century for winter. For all we know, we might have already slipped into the future without noticing it. So about the suitcase, any of you guys watch The Americans? Remember what they did with the suitcase in The Americans? This is what I do with critics. No, the, um, no, 90 books. Lauren D. Esselman's written 90 books. I remember writing each book. I don't remember writing 90 books. <laughs> 90 books. I, I was thinking about doing this when I was asked to do this. I knew I wanted to talk to Lauren because I've been reading him, you know, the Amos Walker novels, amazing, you know, bare-knuckled crime novels, terrific. The Paige Murdoch westerns, you know, very vivid, you know, unbelievable stories of the Old West, inventive, fresh. Um, you know, uh, the Peter Macklin novels, which is about a contract killer, uh, terrific crime stuff and everything, and you know, I've been reading you across the years, and I thought, this might be my one chance to get my book signed. <laughs> so, you mean before I die, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. well, yeah. I know that you're advanced in years, and, and, so, <laughs> and so I brought them, <laughs> all of them. And, and I thought, you know, it's fine if Lauren wants to ask me questions, but I just thought for every question I have to answer, he should have to sign a book. So Works for me. So if that's all right with you. You got it. Do I get to keep the pen? Yeah, you keep, good, that's good, yours, good. from me to you. Right. Right. So go ahead, uh, uh, right. shoot. Let's go for it. Well, I think uh, particularly from what we just heard, uh, there are several things you will notice. One, you will notice a crackling dialogue, yeah, um, which is something I always look for in a, in a writer because I think you can get good dialogue is action. Yeah. And you can get a lot of information across. And it sounds like the way people really speak. Yeah. But is that the way people really speak, or are you creating an illusion of the way people speak? Yeah, I don't, think, uh, I don't think that if you represent the way people really speak, you'd have a lot of stammering and repetition, and you'd have a very tiresome three or four pages to read. But you wouldn't know any more after you read you know, three or four pages of dialogue than you knew before you read them. Um, so that is, that is the art, is to find the rhythm and music of real speech and to try to bring, a lot, bring to life different voices, you know, expressive of different characters. Um, but somehow it has to kind of move and have a rhythm to it. Um, uh, and, um, you know, and, and move the story forward at the same time. And I, I've thought for years that really if you can learn to write dialogue, that will cover for almost all of the deficiencies. I mean, you know, if, you're, if the rest of your writing game is weak, but you can write good dialogue, it's amazing what you can get away with. You know, and I think a lot about um, Gregory MacDonald, who wrote the Fletch novels. The uh, Fletch was, there was a bunch of movies about Fletch. Chevy Chase was in them, and... The books are um, almost all dialogue. The, the books yeah. are all dialogue. Right. There's no description at all. Right. And, um, you know, you can read, you read a whole chapter of just people talking, and only when you get to the end of the chapter you realize both characters were naked the whole time. Right. Which is sort of a wonderful trick. This is Lauren's new one. It's a black and white ball available at bookstores everywhere for, <laughs> for very reasonable prices. And, um, and, and it, the great thing about buying a book is they wrap beautifully for Christmas. So I only mention it. Thank you, sir. <laughs> Talk among yourselves. I'll, uh, I'll introduce a subject. The, Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor empire. <laughs> Talk among yourselves. Don't worry, there's only 89 more to go. <laughs> there you go, sir. You said something in the afterword of Strange Weather which uh, really resonated with me. Um, the virtue of the short novel. Yeah. 
I mean, I mean, I can find, you know, I've, I've, I've done short stories, I've done comics, I've done long novels, I've done sort of ordinary sized novels, if there is such a thing. But Strange Weather is a collection of four short novels, and yeah, I think there's advantages to all the forms. But for stories of, of the weird and fantastic, stories of suspense, there seems to be a sweet spot of between about 75 and 150 pages. And you know, when I go through in my head, you know, and I think about the, you know, the real landmarks of horror and, and suspense, I think about stuff like Turn of the Screw, Short novel, very short novel. Um, Strange Case of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, it can be read in a single sitting. Um, Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman is more recent. I think it's his finest novel. It's about 170 pages, can be read maybe a weekend. Um, you know, uh, um, Haunting a Hill House, uh, Woman in Black. All these are, all these are stories that do their work um, and get the job done very quickly. They, you know, um, uh, there's, no, there's no spare fat on them. Um, nothing is wasted, no scene is wasted. They're lean and mean and, you know, it's, it's that idea that you should live fast, die young, and leave a beautiful cor corpse. That's a terrible plan for a human life, but is actually a pretty good plan for a story. Um, you know, uh, not to waste a moment of people's time. And, and, and a, short, a short novel has the advantages. It, they, have, they have the velocity of a short story. You know, the kind of promise that like, I'm not gonna take up too much of your time. But they have the depth of characterization that we associate with the novel. And I find that a very appealing mix. I think I agree with that. I, uh, when I was a small boy, the, 50s, uh, the most popular books were these 25 cent paperbacks, usually mysteries. And to this day, when I'm going to fly somewhere and I need something to read, I always have to have something to read. It'll take me 15 minutes to pack and two hours to pick my reading material. Because <laughs> you know, the spy lines get kind of long, you don't want to be stuck with it. I brought all my reading novel. material with me this Very time. Very good. You're yeah, I, yeah. And these, these novels, which are like 160 pages usually, about maybe 60,000 words, they would, they would slide right inside my inside sports pocket. Didn't have to fumble in my luggage to get it out while people are waiting to go down the aisle. Um, and I would sit down, usually with a, with a long uh, plane ride that would, it would last just right for the right like the time for the ride. But I will read the opening line, and I want to go out and strangle five of the uh, 10 best-selling writers on the New York Times list, because on their best day, they could not write a line as tight as that. Yeah. They were so tight, and they were so, so crisp. The, um, you know, I, I love those old 50s crime paperbacks that have, you know, it's always got some girl kind of falling out of her dress and she's smoking a cigarette and her hair is down over one eye and, you know, and then you got this kind of thuggish guy sitting on the edge of the bed with, right. the, with the hat, you know, with the gun, yeah, hat yeah. on and his, you know, he's wearing his wife beater and stuff and, and the most beautiful, the most beautiful part of the cover is the thing that says 35 cents in the upper corner. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Those are the, I've told my publishers for years that they've, they've, uh, they're asking too much for their books. And I tell, back in the 1950s, people would go into a drugstore, they would buy a half dozen of those at a pop, uh, knowing that they could pay, pay for them out of pocket, and everybody profited from that. So the same thing happened to comic books. I worked in comic books for years. I was really a comic book writer before I was a novelist. Um, uh, you know, my big professional breakthrough was I wrote an 11-page story for Spider-Man. Um, but it used to be, you know, I, I, look at, I look at Silver Age comics, comics from my youth, comics from the 70s and stuff, and they, you know, they, they have these, the, you know, astonishing covers, the most incredible part of the cover is it says 25 cents in the upper corner. Right. You know, now a comic book costs $5. So when I was a kid, they were 10 $5. cents. $5. They were 10 cents, and then they went to 12 cents, and when they went to 15 cents, it was about the time. I thought it was the barter there. system when, you're, when you bought comics as a kid. I wasn't it like, did, did they, were you even on money then? I, like, I never got rid of them once. I still have all those comics. Don't rob me. Uh, <laughs> I wore the covers off them, I gotta say. They are yeah. Them, but. Well, that's the other thing is, is you know, I know there's a, um, I have some friends in the audience who run a comic book store not too far from here, and they came, on, came up to visit, and you know, I love the comic book stores, but you know, they also make a lot of money selling you bags and boards and everything, you know, and don't, don't stick your comic books in there. Your comic books want to breathe. Let yeah. them be free. I used to have, I had like the number one, the first Spider-Man and all that, all these great comics. Wow. And in high school, there was this lovely 20-year-old teaching assistant who was, uh, she asked to borrow some comics 
Mm. And I didn't ask why, I just took out all my great comics and dumped them on her. And she shared them with everybody in her dorm at the U of M. And, oh, really? And uh, they didn't come back. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I... I, I didn't know. get laid either. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Mm. I didn't mean to... <laughs> What's that line from Pulp Fiction? I'm sorry, did I break your concentration? <laughs> You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, Joe Hill talks about how reading and writing comic books influenced the style of his novels. Listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton, founder of the year-long book festival held in the City Opera House in Traverse City, Michigan. Let's return to Lauren Esselman's conversation with Joe Hill, whose latest book is Strange Weather. Yeah, well, comic books have grown up. They're very dirty now. Very inappropriate. I hope you're all reading them. There's this thing. There's this thing. Um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, 87 to go. <laughs> um, there's a day now on, on social media ruins everything, you know. Now there's a hashtag on social media, um, read comics in public day, you know, and it's like supposed to be like you know you're 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 you know you're celebrating comic books. You're not ashamed anymore. I don't want that. I I want you to feel dirty while you're reading them. <laughs> you know, they are. They should. It should feel almost like one step away from looking at pornography. You yeah, know, well, I, the I second think, yeah. it becomes respectable, all the fun is gone. That's what I always have. I thought if uh, somebody, somebody finds, if a teacher finds some student reading Crime and Punishment with your book on the outside, yeah. something's going wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. I want to be the secret guilty pleasure. I don't want you, you know, if you're reading me in public, you should feel filthy and ashamed. <laughs> I mean, which books do you remember? Do you remember Silas Marner or do you remember the Mickey Spillane novel you read under the covers with a flashlight? That's right. Yeah. Mickey Spillane started writing comic books as well. He did, yeah. And, uh, and I do think, and you've done, you've done a fair amount of journalism, yes? Yes. Yeah. So I think that if you want to become a writer, that's the way to start, is either start in comics or, or, or start in journalism. Because in both cases, you learn things that you have to know um, about economy you know, about getting the story out there and told in a very limited amount of space. And you also learn stuff about getting the important ideas up front. When I started writing um, seriously, you know, um, and was concerned about getting published, I, I collected a lot of rejections, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of rejections. And it took me a long time to learn, you know, I would write short stories that had very good ideas in them, but I wouldn't get to the good idea until page 15. And that is about 14 and a half pages too late. Right. You know, it's got to be right there on the first page, first chapter, maybe the first paragraph, first sentence. And actually, when I looked, my first published book was a collection of stories called 20th Century Ghosts. And now when I go through it, it's so interesting to see how often I basically describe the whole story in the first paragraph. You know, there's a story in there called Pop Art, and the first sentence is, when I was 12 years old, my best friend was an inflatable boy. You know, and, but I had to get it, I have to have it right up there in the front because I was worried no one would read the second sentence. Um, in comic books, though, you learn stuff about, you know, action right in the first panel. That's what they're paying for. Splash panel. You know, big right splash panel, yep, yep. you know, um, um, Spider-Man is putting a boot in someone's ass. You yep. know, you better have it right away because people see that. And, you know, I, when I talked to young, I was talking, to, I talked to a group of young writers today and I was, you know, I was talking about, distraction, because we live in really distracted times. You all have the devices of distraction on you right now, stuck in your pockets. You know, it's just this bottomless pit of stuff to look at, you know, and we've all done it too, where you fall into the internet hole and don't come out for hours. You know, you come out kind of groggy later. I once went online to look up one fact about a gun for a story I was writing. Two and a half hours later, I realized I was reading up about the voice actors in Scooby-Doo. <laughs> What happened? 
that's two and a half hours of my life I can never have back, you know? But, but so, so, you know, if you're a writer, you have to be aware that you're competing with Netflix, you're competing with Amazon Prime, you're competing with Facebook, um, you're competing with PlayStation and Xbox, and there's just so, so little reason for anyone to give you their, their time, let alone their money. And so, I, I, you know, I obsess over how to keep people reading. And, and what I said to the, the kids I was talking to today is, if you're walking along a street and you look up at a building and you see a man 10 stories up and he's crawling on a ledge to rescue a kitten, you stop and you look. Um, maybe you don't want to see what's going to happen next, but you can't help yourself. It's a human response. And I basically view my job as putting someone out on the ledge and then keeping them there as long as I possibly can. And if they finally get to the kitten, you know, then the kitten scratches them in the face. Um, you know, because I'm always terrified the second they get off the ledge, you know, the story's over. Um, and so I think I, I, I place, I've written stories of the supernatural and I sometimes get asked if I'll ever write stuff that's not supernatural. I have actually written some stuff that's not supernatural. What I don't know if I'd trust, I don't know if I'd have the courage to write something that didn't have a very strong element of suspense because I'm very insecure and I can, all I can imagine is people putting the book down. And I don't know how I'd write like, you know, I don't know how I'd like write like a John Updike type novel. I'm not saying they're not brilliant. I'm just saying they're really boring. <laughs> you know, I agree, and I, I think. Uh... Sorry, you know, I mean, like, no, I mean, nothing. They're beautifully written, but nothing ever happens. And yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's, he made a whole career out of that. It's not my cup of tea. And there, are, Carson McCullers is a novel, novelist I love to read. It's fascinating all the way, and at the end, you finish, and your first reaction is, huh? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, yeah, aloft. What the hell was that? So there's four. four not dull. Not dull. Right. So there's four short novels in Strange Weather, and I told you about one. I told you about Rain. The other three is the first story is uh, called Snapshot, and it's about uh, a young kid um, who runs afoul of a dangerous man that has a Polaroid camera that steals memories. Every time he takes a picture, you you lose something in your head. The second story is called Loaded, and that's a story about uh, uh, gun violence in America. You know, because when I think about what's scary, really scary, you know, I don't think about a clown hiding in the sewers or like a rabid dog or something. Yeah, who would come up with a stupid idea I, like right, that? Right, right, you know? I think about, you know, I think about a single white male with a gun. Most terrifying thing in the world, you know? And, but then there's this story, Aloft, which is a little bit lighter than the other stories in Strange Weather. That's a story about, Aloft is about a young man who wants to impress a girl. And so he goes skydiving, and he winds up stranded like Robinson Crusoe on an island of cloud, a semi-solid island of cloud 10,000 feet above the ground. And because of what's happened, I won't you know, ruin the whole thing, he's lost his parachute, and he has no way down. You know, and he's like waving. It's like castaway only in the sky. He's like waving to planes, but like, you know, a plane a mile away is not going to see a little figure on a cloud. And the cloud itself is kind of alive. You know, he's wearing a helmet, and he takes it off, and he's, he's looking around for a place to put it, and then he, uh, and there's a, a coat rack has sprung up out of the cloud. He, he puts it on, you know, but the cloud loves him. It wants to give him things. It gives him a bed. It gives him a toilet. You know, he gives him food, but it turns out eating cloud fruit isn't a very good idea, and he gets explosive diarrhea. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, fortunately, the cloud also gives him toilet paper. And like, unlike, unlike real toilet paper, the cloud toilet paper never runs out. You can just keep pulling, and there's just always more. It gives him a cloud girlfriend. See that. That story had a dream quality to it. Yeah. It's one of those that it makes sense all the time you're living through it. And it's only when you wake up at the end you look back and you're say, like, what, what the, hell, the was that? hell was that? Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, I, like I say, I have a comic book imagination. And I was thinking, I was thinking a lot about um, Little Nemo and Slumberland mm. and the strange quality of those. You know, I don't know, it was, that was done by Walter McKay and it's a comic strip from the 1920s and 30s. Beautifully drawn. Beautifully, beautifully drawn, yeah. so beautifully drawn. People have, you know, people have really forgotten the artistry of the early, the, the comic strips of the 1920s and 1930s and 1940s, you know, not just Little Nemo, but, um, you know, Prince Valiant. I mean, Prince, every frame of, it's amazing to think right. that 
Hal Foster, who did Prince Valiant, did it for 50 years. And every panel has this beautiful painterly quality to it. And he just churned them out you know, day after day and um, amazing production. But yeah, I was thinking about the kind of dreamlike quality of that sort of thing, a little Nemo. Yeah. I think your stories and uh, Snapchat was one of those. Um, they do carry a strong mystery quality mm. because mm -hmm. it's a while before you let us know that what exactly this camera is doing. And yeah. you give us a clue at one point, and I finally, I was, I, I can, I, as many mystery novels as I've written, I can almost never solve another mystery writer's mystery. <laughs> uh, and that was one where I began to see what you were getting at, but I think I saw where you were headed at the very moment you wanted me to see it. And I think it's the moment when the boy, and you have these wonderful wounded characters who are your protagonists as a rule. Mm, you know, thank he's you. a fat boy dealing with all that. Yeah, overweight, that very, you know, and he's talking sides. about what it was like to be right. overweight in the 80s before yeah. there was even the term fat yeah. shaming. And there's a moment where he accidentally trips the camera himself and it takes a picture of or a fellow friend. he knows and then, then suddenly the guy doesn't remember yeah, him guy anymore. That guy doesn't remember him anymore. And yeah. it was, uh, until that moment you are in suspense as to what the hell is going on here. Because you get this clue from the old lady who has Alzheimer's who says, don't, don't let right. her take your picture. There's a, couple things, there's a couple things to respond to there. One is, so the story is partially, it's set in the 1980s, and it's about this kid um, you know, who, who was looked after for a long time by a woman who lives around the corner. And in the opening of the story, she's out wandering barefoot in her pajamas and she's got a purse full of garbage that she's picked up. She's clearly very disoriented and confused. And um, I wanted to write a story about, you know, about Alzheimer's, but I wanted to give us someone we could punch. Because, you know, many people see loved ones, you know, lose it all, their thoughts, their memories, their whole life stripped away to them. And in some ways that seems crueler than death, you know, to have your personality slowly pulled away. And there's no one to fight, you know? You just want to punch someone, you know? But unfortunately, Alzheimer's doesn't have a face, you know? And so in, in the story, that's one of the things, hopefully, that fiction can do is, you know, you can vicariously get some kind of release against, you know, the awfulness of life that normally you can't, you can't respond to. But the other thing is, is, you know, I do think all my stories have a mystery component to them. They're not whodunit stories there, who are these people? You know, who, who, who is he? Um, my first novel, Heart Shaped Box, is about a heavy metal musician um, who buys a ghost online. He has a collection of macabre artifacts. He's got a tree pan skull. He's got a witch's confession from the 18th century. And he hears about a woman selling a ghost online and decides he needs that for his collection. And um, the guy we meet at the beginning of the story, is in, he's 60, he's on the downslope of his career, but he's had it all, you know, he's played arenas, he's had platinum albums, he did music videos in the 80s for MTV, he was an MTV star, and he's, when we meet him, he's so angry, you know, and he's lonely and isolated, and he's cruel to people who love him, and, and I got wondering about him, I, who is this guy, how do you wind up this way? And he became almost this thing I needed to investigate. And it took me about 300 pages to find out who he really was. Um, and, and gradually I did discover that he, he was a better man than we thought he was at first. You know, that he's, he was actually a, a much more decent, caring person under the surface, but he had kind of strapped on this armor, you know, this, this, and the armor of his rage to protect himself mm -hmm. um, from any more loss he had already had enough. Yeah, I, I think what I like about your characters and the way you handle them is you will take a character who is in anybody else's hands is an out-and-out -out villain and mm. somehow, and I think, does it have to do maybe with, any, and somehow he's sympathetic to a certain degree. Um, is it because the villain doesn't realize he's a villain or is it something else? You should be able to, I, I, I do believe that in a good story you should be able to almost imagine a way to rewrite it where the villain is the good guy. You know, so I wrote this story, The Fireman, and The Fireman is an, is an apocalypse story. It's about a runaway pathogen called Dragon Scale. And the stuff is spreading everywhere, and you get it on you, and it's like, it almost looks like a tattoo. It's a beautiful black scroll work. But when you get anxious, it starts to smoke, 
And if you can't control your fear, you burst into flames and die of spontaneous combustion. Hospitals are burning down all over America. Cities are on fire. You know, it's this uncontrollable, uncontrollable crisis. Well, the heroes in the story are two people who are infected. And there's a gang of people who are out hunting them. Um, because the one thing that they know is the healthy people know if you shoot someone who's sick with this stuff, they won't be afraid anymore and there's no risk they'll burst into flames. So you can stop the spontaneous combustion by killing someone. I was thinking about Walking Dead, you know, and that guy in the cowboy hat, you know, and it's like, what is, Walking Dead is a story where it imagines a tiny few people who are like, you know, normal and healthy and well, and then everyone else in the world is sick and filthy, and it's like the only way to be safe is almost to build a wall between you and them, you know, if you could just keep them on the other side of the wall, you'd be safe. And, you know, they've got the people on, on you know, the healthy side of the wall have all the guns, and, uh, you know, um, and, and when they kill someone who's sick, it's a mercy. You know, it's actually, you can actually feel good every time they shoot someone in the head, you can cheer because they're like, boy, another one of those nasty things killed. And a little part of me is kind of like, I feel like I kind of want to root for the, the sick. You know, I don't really want to be on the side of the healthy exterminating the ill. I think I'd rather be on the side of, of the sick, you know, um, struggling to su survive, you know, again, I feel like that's more the underdog, that's more interesting. So basically, The Fireman is an inverted version of Walking Dead. Um, I did another book called Nosferatu, and Nosferatu is about a kind of vampire named Charlie Manx. Charlie Manx drives a, you know, I'm doing the car. The, uh, Charlie Manx drives a 1938 Rolls-Royce Wraith, and he takes children, and he gets them in the back of it, and he drives them to this awful fantasy world called Christmas Land. And, and, you know, and when, he's, when they're in the car, when they're on the drive, he drains all their sadness out of them, all their grief, all their rage, all their regret, and leaves nothing but happiness and innocence. You know, so by the time they get to Christmas land, happiness is, uh, in Christmas land, unhappiness is against the law. And all the children there are relentlessly happy. They're happy no matter what they're doing. They're happy uh, whether they're opening Christmas gifts or riding amusement park rides or playing a game called Scissors for the Drifter where they, they have scissors and they chase a homeless guy around the park. Because the thing about innocence the thing about innocence is an innocent child will rip the wings off a butterfly. Because they're innocent, they don't know they're doing something wrong. Now, Charlie Manx is a pretty terrible guy, but when I wrote it, I was, you know, it's sort of, all he wants is kids to be happy and safe. In a weird way, isn't that almost like he's the hero of the story? And I wrote it, I had, I had, I had gotten divorced, and, um, I thought after the divorce, I thought, I've ruined my kid's childhood. They're going to have a terrible, terrible child. And I was determined that it wouldn't happen. And so I became the emperor of fun. And like for 18 months, everything we did had to be relentlessly fun. You know, I, I did this thing called the daddy drive-in where I put up a, you know, big sheet out back and we watched old movies every night. And, uh, you know, we got into Doctor Who and uh, we, we all had matching Doctor Who sneakers and... Um, the Chuck Taylor All-Stars, very cool. Um, you know, and we'd, I, you know, they'd get out of school and I'd be like, let's drive 45 minutes to this place that has all these old arcade games and stuff. And I was a maniac, you know? And then at some point, about a year and a half after the divorce, I thought, what are you doing? You know, they went through a divorce too. Shouldn't they feel some regret? I mean, isn't that healthy? to feel a little grief and a little sadness, and isn't that partially how we become complete human beings? Your regret, your grief, your guilt, they make you a more full human being. Empathy depends on the ability to feel sadness. Um, if you couldn't feel sadness, you wouldn't give a damn about anyone. You're listening to the National Writers Series from Interlochen Public Radio. Coming up, more of Lauren Esselman's conversation with horror writer Joe Hill.
You're listening to the National Writer Series from Interlochen Public Radio. I'm Doug Stanton. Let's return to Lauren Esselman's conversation with Joe Hill. People ask, you get this, I get this, I think every writer does, and there's really no answer to it. They ask, where do you get your ideas? Yeah. Uh, but I, what I like to know as a writer, from a fellow writer, is how an idea becomes a story. And do you, when you get an idea, do you immediately start making notes? Do you immediately go into that project? Or does it have to gestate? Well, sometimes while? they brew for a really long time. And sometimes, you know, sometimes not too long. The story Loaded, which is about gun violence, um, I had that idea. I saw the whole thing very clearly beginning to end um, within a couple weeks of what happened at Sandy Hook. But I didn't write it for three years. and just sat there in my head. You know, and it's funny how the good ones stick. You don't forget them. You can write them whenever. You know, you can write them, you know, once you've got them worked out, you can start writing right away, or you can just let them float for years, and then when you're ready to write them, they'll, you know, they'll be there for you sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. Um, um, other times, you know, um, other times I'll have an idea and I'll start writing almost right away, and usually that's a big mistake. Oof. You know, a lot of times you wind up with something. I, de I definitely think it's like brewing tea, you know, or... or um, it has to steep, right? Yeah, it has yeah. to steep for a little while. Um, I, did this, I did this comic book, Lock and Key, which is about an enchanted New England mansion full of impossible keys. Every key opens a different door and activates a different supernatural power. And I did that, I had this big breakthrough where I got to write a Spider-Man story. And after that, I was hot to write more comics. And... I came up with this pitch, and I sent it to Marvel, and they passed on it. And I sent it to DC Comics, and they passed on it, too. And Dark Horse passed on it. A bunch of other comic companies passed on it. But I didn't pass on it. And I had little kids at the time, and I always ran out of diapers at 1 in the morning. You never run out of diapers in the middle of the day. So it'd be 1 in the morning, I have to go out for diapers. And I'd go to Walgreens, I'd be like half awake, and I'd come up with an idea for a new key. You know, I think that's pretty cool. So by the time I finally got to write the comic, I had been thinking about the story for like a year and a half. I gotta tell you one thing about going to Walgreens at one in the morning. Um, so uh, I, had, I had babies, you know, little babies. I had to go for diapers and I, I got to Walgreens at one in the morning. I was just punch drunk and I was so tired. And I'm, I'm walking around and the loudspeaker says, remember, we're 50% off on lunch meats. And that was so musical, that word, lunch beats. And I started walking through, I started walking through the aisles, and I started going, lunch meat? <laughs> lunch meat? And I, I came around the aisle, bumped into this woman, and I'm like going, lunch meat? And, and she's like, oh! And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And so I bought the diapers and I ran outside and I, I got in the red car and I, you know, I closed the door and I'm sitting in the red car and I'm putting the keys in and the car wouldn't start. And then I started to think, I didn't take the red car. <laughs> I took my wife's car. And suddenly I see it, the whole thing. She's going to come out and find me in her car. And she's going to be like, he was screaming about his lunch meat, and then he was waiting for me in the car. I'm going to do 15 years as a sex criminal. <laughs> do you want to know something really terrible? You want to know something really terrible? It didn't happen. None of it happened. It's just, I was in Walgreens, and I heard lunch meat, and then I started working on the story. You know, and that's kind of what you have to do, is it's like you're always kind of looking like, what would be the worst case scenario here? You know, and I was thinking, well, what if I was going lunch meat and I scared someone and then I got in the wrong car? And, you know, and it's almost like the first chapter of a really upsetting novel about how an innocent guy goes to jail and then hopefully more funny but terrible stuff would happen to him. And, <laughs> and you know, but you kind of, you kind of, you know, that's, I don't know if it's the good or the bad part of, of writing. You're constantly kind of churning, you know, churning and seeing if you can't find some, something, you know, something that you can make the next story out. I had a, a lot of sympathy for Philip Roth. After he stopped writing, he said, you know, the work is over. And he said, the best thing about it is now a conversation is just a conversation. It used to be when I had a conversation, I was filtering everything mm -hmm. to see, is there something here? 
What can I, where's the next bit of material? You know, and he's like, now I just talk to friends. I thought, I can see how that might be kind of nice. Yeah. Remember, there's a wonderful movie, Stranger Than Fiction. I think it's the only Will Ferrell movie I really like. Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson. And Emma Thompson is a novelist. And Will Ferrell suddenly, he's, just, he's a guy who works for the IRS. Uh, he's a, a tax auditor. And suddenly he hears a narration. Somebody's narrating his life. Yeah. And he hears this voice. It turns out to be Emma Thompson. She doesn't know it that she's writing about a real guy. And there's one point when she says, um, little did he know that his death was imminent. So he's, like, he's screaming at the, what? Whose death is imminent? When? <laughs> and he goes through all this time trying to find out who she is. He finally finds her. But this wonderful line, her, her whole problem is she's having a, a bad case of uh, writer's block. She hasn't been able to publish a book in 10 years because the character's name is Harold Crick. And all of her books end tragically. Mm. And she can't figure out how to kill Harold Crick. So the, mm. uh, the, the publisher sends her a, uh, an assistant who will help her arrive at a conclusion. And Queen Latifah is the assistant. And finally, uh, she comes out. And, and at one point, um, Emma Thompson is out there. And she just sees, basically, she sees a green apple rolling down the street. And suddenly, she has the idea. And she comes back. And she says, I figured out how to kill Harold Crick. And Queen Latifah says, how did you figure it out? How did you get that idea? And she said, well, Penny, I, the idea came the way they always do, inexplicably and without method. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's ever written, I think, understands that line. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Inexplicably and without, that's like the story of my life. Inexplicable yep. and without method. Yep. Look good on a tombstone, wouldn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. God. <laughs> mm. Yeah. My tombstone is going to read, you're standing on my face. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever contemplate, and, and I think uh, uh, Strange Weather is a really good example that you have three uh, supernatural fantasy stories, and one story which is very realistic, which yeah. is loaded, very much something yeah. that we read about in the, uh, yeah. in the headlines. And I think what fascinated me, particularly for somebody who's worked for newspapers, is how different an event, an actual event is that you've seen, as opposed to what you see on the news. Right. And well, it's sort of the, it's sort of the, um, so this guy, there was a demented fella who shot up a movie theater in Colorado. And um, I saw someone online, this is back when I was still doing social media, which I try to avoid nowadays, and I think it's real healthy for you. Um, but this guy was, this, this guy said, um, this is why concealed carry is important. And let me tell you, if I had been in that movie theater, that story would have ended differently. And I remember thinking, what are you talking about, you fool? You know, it would have ended differently. You used to, everyone stands up in a dark movie theater screaming and you pull out your gun, start shooting. It would have ended differently for a whole bunch of people because there would have been twice as many people dead, you know, and it, it's, uh, this idea that just owning a gun somehow makes you a gunslinger, you know, is just bizarre. And, and the, whole, the whole theory of, you know, the good guy with a gun rests on the idea that merely buying, you know, merely possessing the gun somehow means that you're prepared for an active fire situation, which in fact are almost impossible to prepare for and involve a lot of confusion and collateral damage and um, you know the people who survive them train professionals you know police officers who have been in gunfights spend years recovering from them you know and i just I, you know i hate i hate this kind of fantasy version of gun violence and i wanted to write about that and the story is about a guy who appears to stop a mass shooting in a mall and he becomes he's the good guy with the gun he's a mall cop it's like paul blart, paul blart mall cop gone horribly wrong He's, he's the good guy with a gun, and he starts doing all the news interviews and stuff. He becomes a national star. But under the pressure of the national spotlight, his story starts to come apart, and his sanity starts to come apart with it. And eventually he reaches for the gun again. And I, I don't want to say too much about it, because I, you know, I don't want to give a whole bunch away, but, but um, you know, I... I wrote that story, and uh, about six months later, this demented guy shot up a newsroom and killed Carl Hyacinth's brother and a great crime writer, Florida crime writer, mm -hmm. Carl Hyacinth, and killed a bunch of other journalists. And he just gave me a terrible, 
a terrible feeling because you know we're living we're living in a moment where you know um, if you're writing about gun violence anything you could imagine if it hasn't happened will happen you know it was just too <clears throat> you know I found that very disconcerting you know and um, we do live in a moment when you know unfortunately um, <clears throat> you know you're not safe in church you're not safe in, in um, you know movie theater you're not safe in school um, you know the the thought that the kids have to practice gun drill, drills that arts arts classes and music classes have been canceled so that school boards can afford to buy metal detectors um, somehow it just doesn't seem like the place we want to be mm -hmm. you know like I'm not exactly then you know I'm not exactly sure how we got to this moment um, where everyone is huddled in a defensive crouch and you know parents are sending kids to school with uh, backpacks that have Kevlar in them so that they can duck behind the backpack and the bullets will bounce off them and there's got to be a better way it just doesn't seem like that could possibly be the best strategy for a large society um, you know maybe I'm wrong I don't know but anyway but oh thanks Is it a placebo, though, when they do this? It's like when I was a kid, it was, uh, we had the nuclear drills. Yeah. And you went out in the hallway and you, and you ducked and covered and you put your head down like that was going to help you survive a nuclear holocaust. The is difference that, is that the missiles never fell, but the bullets are falling. True. You know, that, that unfortunately it is happening. Right. And um, uh, I, I, do think, I do think maybe one thing that would help is if, you know, it does seem there's, there's, there's and people are on different sides of this thing and it seems like sometimes like there's never any common ground. But one thing that has, I do think there are a lot of fixes that are just not going to happen anytime soon in this country. But one thing that has, has, has been getting talked about that I do think is a healthy thing is when the family can say, you know, um, he's, he's, he's not well and he's making plans. You know, he's got guns and he's, he's making plans to right. use them. You know, there does seem to be room for law enforcement to have an immediate injunction to come in and take the guns away and for a while, you know, for a couple of weeks and have some kind of evaluation. I also think a big thing is, um, you know, um, I wanted to write about a lot of different facets of gun violence in America because the mass shootings are just the most obvious. Um, but there's also, you know, all these young black kids who are you know, totally unarmed, who have been you know, shot by police or want to be police, want to be cops, you know, make, make believe cops in, in Florida and stuff. And, and I wanted to talk about that. I also wanted to talk about, you know, here's a scene that happens in America. It happens every night. It's happening somewhere tonight. You got a guy who's a good neighborhood dude. You know, he has backyard barbecues. He's got two kids and his wife and he works hard 40 hours a week and he's got a smile for everyone. Nice guy and he owns guns. Good guy though. But he has a couple drinks and he's sitting in the kitchen and he says to his wife, you ever leave me, I'll shoot you and I'll shoot them. And he's got the, you know, he's got the gun and he's waving it around. That scene plays out in America every single night, you know, somewhere. And that's gun violence too. And, and I do think that one thing, and a lot of states have this, and it, it seems to be coming, I do think, you know, you take the back of your hand to your wife, you can say goodbye to your guns. That's not gonna happen anymore. You know, there should, it should just be understood that because over and over again, when you see these guys who have you know, shoot up the school, shoot up the movie theater, shoot up the church, there's always domestic violence. It's amazing the correlation between, because they build up to it, just like serial killers build up to it by strangling cats. This is a cherry conversation, boy. I do, I know to how to, say, do I know how to bring the fun or what? I was just going to say, on that, on that bright note, I would like, this is always one of my favorite things when I speak or when somebody else speaks, is when we, uh, we declared open line Friday and we opened it up to the audience. So I think we will do that. Um, they have mics. Hi, how are you? You having a good time? Hi, Joe. Yes, uh, I just want to let you know that I love you and your family. You have entertained me for very many years. Oh, you're so kind. And everything that you write is wonderful. So thank you very much. Thanks. That's my kind of question. Yeah. I think the question was, how did you get so great? Well, let me tell you. I'd like to say he, had, he doesn't have the advantage I had. My father was a truck driver. My mother was a postal carrier, so I had nothing to live up to. <laughs> I couldn't drive and I couldn't deliver mail. Well, 
Jay Leno used to have this joke about Steve King. It used to be like, Steve King says to the kids, do you want to hear a bedtime story? And the kids go, no! <laughs> but actually, actually, my dad told great bedtime stories. And uh, my dad used to tell us Spider-Man stories when I was a kid. My dad understood instinctively that when he told my sister and I Spider-Man stories that he couldn't kill Spider-Man because the comics were still coming out. Obviously, Spider-Man wasn't dead. But there are worse things than death, especially when you're a little kid, like humiliation. And my dad understood the great power of humiliation. So he would tell these Spider-Man stories like, okay, so Peter Parker is like out on the street and then suddenly the lizard bursts out of the sewer. You know, and he's wreaking havoc in New York City, and Spider-Man's like, and Peter Parker's like, I gotta jump into action. So he throws on the Spider-Man suit, and he webs down, and he's like fighting a lizard, and the lizard winds up and buries his reptilian fist in Spider-Man's stomach. Spider-Man doubles over, and his bowels let go. <laughs> and he just, he just fills the super suit with <laughs> you know? And like, as kids, my sister and me would be like, no! We'd just scream. We'd scream in anguish. And my dad had perfected this look. And it was a look that seemed to say, I don't write the news, I just report it. <laughs> you know? I know we're out of time. We've actually gone past our time. Um, I just want to thank Lauren again. Thank you. Um, for letting me to share a moment on stage with him. Um, you know, as well, a you huge admirer. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a and, delight. And thanks, thanks to you guys for coming out and supporting the series. Yeah. That was Joe Hill talking with Lauren Esselman. Joe Hill's latest book is Strange Weather. Support for the National Writers Series comes from Jonathan and Marissa Weggie, supporting good things that need to happen now. Learn more about the National Writers Series and upcoming events at nationalwritersseries.org and listen to past programs at interlockandpublicradio.org. For Interlock and Public Radio, I'm Linnea Melcarrick. <laughs>